All right, welcome to another round of Let's Buy a Business. I'm your host, Ryan Condi. We've got a really cool guest with us today, David C. Barnett. He was on the show four or five months ago. Um, a link to it there in the show notes where you can listen to the first episode. This is round two with David. This is a little bit more of a back and forth, uh, rapid fire with questions because he has done everything from building small businesses, helping people exit their small businesses. He's sold his own small businesses and um, he's written some really wonderful books about buying companies, building companies. And um, of course, we talk about how not to fall for some of the scams that are out there. So a few of the questions we dive into is that the questions that we get often are, you know, are small businesses a better investment than properties? Is this a good business? Um, I've heard you can buy a business with zero down. Is that true? Um, and then of course, are there businesses I could buy while keeping my day job? So these are all things that uh, David and I go riff on. We go back and forth. Um, David, you can find him at davidcbarnett.com. That's his website. Or you can go to just YouTube and type in uh, David C. Barnett. And uh, he has hundreds of videos on his YouTube channel. I find them really quite fascinating. Just really, really good about sharing his knowledge and doing it through examples and stories. So uh, check him out, check out his YouTube channel. But uh, yeah, we're gonna go ahead and jump in. This was a fun episode. Hey David, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going Ryan? I'm glad to be back. Awesome. Three, three more appearances and I get a jacket or what? Yeah, exactly. You'll get uh, you'll get a jacket. You'll you'll get a you know a poppet for your phone. You can put on your phone case or something like that. So awesome. yeah, this David, this is your second time. Thanks for jumping jumping on the the line again with us. We had such a good session. It was one of our most popular sessions of the last few months, and so a ton of feedback came through. And I don't know um, what that was in terms of your book sales, but you got some fantastic books that uh, that, we'll, that we'll mention and we'll link to. And of course, your YouTube subscriber channel. What I thought would be cool, David, is we've got uh, you know five or six questions that I think that are the most common questions that you receive, that I receive. I'd love to just spitball and go back and forth on these if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Okay. So uh, first question is, one we get often is, are small businesses a better investment than properties? <laughs> so love to love to hear your take and I'll give you my take on it too. Uh, okay, that's a, that's a great question. I think that there, is it better? I don't know. I think it depends what you're looking for because when you buy a property, you're buying a big, solid, tangible thing, right? Big building. And you know, for most places in North America, if you properly maintain a building, they should stand for like hundred years, right? So it's a, it's a long-lived asset. What is very difficult to do is double the revenue on a property. In a business, the business is a lever. So uh, you and I touched on this a little bit, I think last time where we talked about how businesses are asymmetrical systems. You can have a, a small decline in revenue and a big decline in profit. Well, the opposite is true. You can have like a, a 20 or 30% increase in revenue. And if you don't have to increase many of your overheads, it could double your profit. I think that businesses allow you to play with that lever, it's it's a whole different ball of wax. It's a lot more of a dangerous game because the lever can move in both directions. The property side, I think, is a lot more of an eddy steady, you know, sort of thing. Like you're you're buying this big solid thing. It's more durable, long lasting, but it doesn't act as a lever in the same way. I, I love that you mentioned that because that's exactly right. You can't really 10x a, a house, right? You're kind of, you know, going through the market forces. Like, yeah, maybe you remodel, you put some countertops and then you, you put some sod in the backyard, but there's not that much more you can do it. Or 
even on an apartment complex, you can you can remodel it, do do a few things, and you can raise rents a little bit, right? But um, I also think too, I get this question a lot, and the big thing is, are you looking for an active investment or a passive investment? Because the least form of passive investment would be buying a business. <laughs> it's uh, uh, it, that's the nature of it is you have these levers that can go up and go down pretty dramatically, and it requires time, it requires activeness in the business. Whereas I think if some investors are looking for, if you're looking to be a passive investor you should passively invest in businesses or passively invest in you're investing in a business and an operator or you're investing in a property and a property management company that's actually going to going to do all those things for you it's it's interesting because at one time i had three different small apartment buildings uh, three and four unit buildings when i was young and single i used to do everything i would collect the rents i would mow the lawns i would do the light maintenance i would do painting all that kind of stuff and uh, it was amazing how many hours uh, it would take to take care of those three little buildings. And then I got married and had kids and I didn't want to go the full way of hiring a property manager because I felt they would take too big a, a, a chunk out of that cash flow. And so I tried to I tried to reach a middle ground where I started to employ subcontractors that would do more. Like I found the plumber that was more expensive, but he would call and make his own appointment with my tenant, right? So I wouldn't have to go and show up and that kind of thing. And it was an interesting exercise because Honestly, the more I wanted my own time back, the more I realized that the cash flow I always thought was there wasn't really there. The, the cash flow was really just like a wage for, yeah. for me to spend my time working on the buildings. Eventually, I had to go to a full service property manager. And once their fee came off and then the fees of all the people they were hiring to do the things I used to do, uh, really, there wasn't anything left. I was, I was going to have to wait you know, for 15 years to pay off the mortgages before I saw positive cash flow again. It was, it was quite the eye-opener and a really educational thing to live through. Yeah. And of course, you know, this is a buying business podcast. So we're going to talk more of the, the benefits of that. But I think um, when, when, you, when you realize what your goals are, I think a lot of times people get into properties thinking like, oh, you know, these, these rich people have properties. There's other benefits. There's tax benefits depending upon where you live. I know you're based in mm-hmm. Canada, David, and here in the US, there's different tax benefits. But, um, you know, ultimately you got to figure out what do you want to do with that money? And like, what's your goal with that money, right? And if you're trying to be passive in a real estate transaction, you're going to pay all the fees and you may not have anything left. So to me, part of real estate is almost like a hedge against inflation because, you know, push and shove, they're going to print more money and eventually it will go up. Maybe you have a 2008 where it drops a little bit, but it kind of usually recovers if you don't have to sell and you can hold on for another 10 years, you did great, another five years. Um, but I, I think a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder and what they're trying to do. I also feel like most people, if they're just trying to get one or two investment properties, um, they don't have the economies of scale that you would need to make it interesting. You've got to, you've got to be all in and decide to, to really build that up. And I, I've noticed the people who kind of dabble in it, they, they just don't have the economies of scale to get anything out of it. A, A friend of mine who, who originally comes from Peru said that, um, you know, he had always been taught by some of his mentors that real estate is like a, is almost a store of value. And it's, it's best to play in that game when you have a strong hand, meaning you have a strong, successful cash flowing business. And that's what you use to funnel money into the real estate. Uh, because I, I, I knew many people, uh, you know, at one point here, back when real estate prices were really inflating at the end of the two early 2000s, uh, you know, you could get investment properties with really high leverage, like 5% down. And there were people basically scrapping together the last 10 bucks to make that 5% down payment. And then they would end up with an empty unit one month and they, they couldn't afford the consequence of a vacancy because they were so tight. 
And, and when you're in a position like that, what mean, what that means is that you, you have to accept the tenant that you know is the wrong tenant. And that just opens the door (laughs) to a whole world of hurt, right? Yeah. You take the people that have the dog, even though, you know, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, rent to someone who has a dog or you take the, you know, the the person who acts a little shifty and is always scratching. And and then you're like, Hmm, no, I've let the wrong element into my home, into my property. (laughs) Absolutely. So I think if you're listening to this and debating between a property and business, um, you, you have our two cents. And, uh, if you want to go still buy the property, you've been warned. <laughs> um, another question I get a lot, David is someone brings me a business and says, is this a good business? <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I, I, well, I think it's, is this a good business for, for me or for you? Right. Because I always tell people that they need to play to their strengths. What do you know? You know, the, the more that you can take advantage of your own personalized set of skills and experiences, the better off you're going to be. And the, the more able or capable you're going to be for the business that's, that's right for you to take advantage of that knowledge. You know, somebody, I used to see this all the time. You know, I, I don't know if when I was on the last time I taught, told the experience of the chicken franchise, but um, I used to get civil servants and bankers and all kinds of people in all the time to look at this business I had for sale. It was a, it was a fried chicken franchise. And all they saw was were the numbers. And they're like, this is a great business. Then they would meet Tony, the guy that owned it, and who would show them where he'd been burned by the by the grease fryer and where he'd been cut by the French fried chopper. And, and he would explain that he was the only person who would who would clean the French fried chopper because he didn't want to risk a work say a workplace health and safety claim. So he he personally did that and he, and it had cut him, right? So he literally had the scars of the chicken business on his hands a lot of those people backed away from it. And eventually I sold it to a guy who used to be in the pizza business. And unfortunately his restaurant burned down in a fire from that came over from a neighboring business. So, you know, he knew what he was getting into because he had been in a, in a franchise food business before and he knew precisely what he was getting into. And so I would say that that pizza guy was a much more suitable buyer for that business than the guy who worked at the bank. If it's got a positive cash flow that will cover the basis, it's going to let you take home enough money for your family. It's going to allow you to pay your taxes, allow you to do your capital expenditures, allow you to service your debt. And then there's something else there to kind of give you a return on the cash you put into the deal. Then, then that is going to provide for you. Now, what's the next step? Well, what are your goals? You know, Do you have a certain goal for the next 10 years? Is that business going to be a vehicle that's going to allow you to achieve that goal? So if, you're, if your goal is like to live a certain amount, of, I heard you had a guest recently that spends part of the year in South America. So that, that chicken franchise is probably not the vehicle to allow someone to spend half the year in South America, right? So it's going to be some other kind of business. And this, I always encourage people, you want to write these things down. Like, where are you in 10 years? What does it look like? You know, what do you, what does your lifestyle need to be today? What kind of revenue do you need to have today? And um, you ever heard of the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz? No, I don't know that one. It's, it's a great book. Uh, Maxwell Maltz was a, is considered to be the father of modern understanding of self-image. And he was a plastic surgeon. And the reason he got into it was because he had people come into his office saying, I need you to make my ears smaller so I'll be a better salesman. Just crazy stuff, right? <laughs> but that's when he began to understand that self-image had a huge role in, in people's lives and how they how they act in the world. Back to the chicken franchise, you know, I would ask people that were middle management at the Power Commission, are you going to be happy on the golf course when you meet your buddies telling them that you are now the owner of the chicken place? Does this fit within your self-image? 
Mm-hmm. Because people will get excited about the numbers and they'll make an offer and they'll talk to the banker and they'll have a deal come through. But the questions like these will be answered in the middle of the night, in the days before closing. And if they're not answered in a satisfactory way, the closing will not happen. As I started to see these bumps when I was a broker, I started to bring this stuff up to the front because I would challenge people on it because I didn't want to carry this deal through for months and months and have it fall apart in the last you know few days. So it's it's got to be the right business for the person. It's got to deliver for today. It's got to be a vehicle that might deliver for that future vision of yourself. And it's got to fit within your self-image. You send up so many really amazing points right there. And I think a lot of it is, hey, is this a good business? Well, it depends. You know, what what kind of problems do you want to solve? What problems do you know how to solve? Um, are you playing to your strengths? And I think most businesses that you're going to see that come up for sale, they probably make sense um, on a PL, right? Like, you know, there's obvious reasons on a PL if something doesn't make sense. But if you take out what the business does, a lot of the businesses that people will be looking at will make sense. You know, you're, you're paying a 3X or a 4X or 2X, whatever you're paying for the business. You know, you run the, the numbers on the loan. If you were to take a loan on it or whatever, however you're structuring the deal, a lot of them will make sense. But what doesn't make sense is, you know, a couple hours or a couple of days before you go and you're, in the, you're up in the middle of the night and you're looking to close this deal. Exactly. Like you said, can you see yourself owning a chicken franchise and are you okay with the burns on your arms? Like, do you want to solve those problems? Um, I, I think also along the same lines is it's hard to tell what it's a good business and what's not a good business because we all have different risk profiles. Hmm. And so um, we're all comfortable with certain levels of risk and buying a business is pretty risky. That's, you know, you're, you're trying to jumpstart two to 20 years ahead, maybe longer of where you're at. And so you're doing that by buying a business. And so um, I, I have met people who found amazing businesses, but it would require them to borrow millions of dollars. And they're not okay with that. Even though this was a wonderful business, that doesn't make it a good business for them. And I say, you know, if, if your risk profile is going to keep you up at night by doing this deal, it's probably not the best business for you, right? Uh, if it, whatever is allowing you to sleep at night is, is really quite important in that that level changes dramatically with each individual buyer in different stages of life. You know, as uh, you, you were mentioning, when you were young, you, you didn't have any kids, right? You were probably willing to work those extra hours, willing to do those hard mm-hmm. things, put in that that sweat equity, or take those risks. And all of a sudden, you've got older kids now, and you're like, well, I don't really want to miss their soccer games. I don't want to miss their piano recitals. Or you know what? I, I'm not willing to you know sign that personal guarantee. They're just different stages of life that you have all these different risk levels and comfort levels. And it's funny because there's an expression that I've heard through my life and it's only, I'm in my mid forties now. It's only now that I've been starting to get it, but have you ever heard the expression? That's an opportunity for a younger man. I think that's exactly what we're talking about. The sponsor for today's episode is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned small business lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Andressen directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com slash let's buy. That's liveoakbank.com slash let's buy. Every time I hear about that, I think about when, when Jeff Bezos, you know, the founder of, of uh, Amazon, he was making, this is in the 90s, he was making $500,000 a year uh, in Wall Street. He was going to leave. He was going to start this crazy online bookstore and his manager pulled him aside. Hey, this is a great idea. 
But for someone who doesn't have a job of your situation, you know, back in the nineties, half a million bucks a year is probably equivalent to 1.2, 1.5 million a year now. And who's, yeah. who's willing to walk away from a seven figure salary to, to, to bet it on a startup. So I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to using that now I'm 35. So um, I'm starting to feel like there are opportunities that uh, a younger self would have been more inclined to, to jump on. Um, David, a couple of questions left. So um, are there businesses I can buy while keeping my day job? Ooh, okay. So someone asked me this question on, on uh, one of my YouTube videos. I, I answered it on a YouTube video. Here's the answer. It, it, it depends, obviously, right? And so here's what it depends upon. It depends upon how well the business can be managed or overseen by somebody who's not there. And so I, I always ask people, you know, think about a chain business that you've seen. Like maybe there are a lot of Exxon gas stations near you, for example. So each one of those gas stations has a manager. And if you own a business and you're not there, uh, then you're probably going to have to have some kind of manager in place. But that Exxon store manager doesn't sit there making all the decisions for the store for the whole year and then produce financial statements that get sent up to head office. That store manager is reporting to a regional manager who's overseeing maybe, I don't know, 20 locations perhaps. And that regional manager is looking at certain metrics, looking at certain numbers to supervise what is happening on a, on a bigger level. And if you're going to own a business while keeping your job and you're going to have to develop that skill set, you're going to have to figure out how can I observe and track what's going on there so that I know that things are being handled properly. And that usually means that you need to have some level of familiarity with the business, or it has to be a business that already functions in that kind of way. So if, for example, some guy owned six uh, sandwich shop locations and he wants to sell one of them, that, that business is already being managed in that way. And, and you would have to do a transfer of skills from that seller about how they supervise and keep, keep a track of it. You know, I, I've, I've seen people try to do this and the ones that seem to be successful are the ones that get into businesses that are very systematizable. Uh, one in particular, I can think of he owned driving schools. And so it was, you know, one person made the sale, another person ran the office, and then the teachers would get the students. That was all one-on-one -on -one work, and there were reports associated with that. So it was very easy to turn the activity of that business into a report for the week of what was going on. And a lot of other businesses, if the presence of ownership isn't there, they start to fall apart. And, and I always point my finger at, you know, the big franchises, for example. Like, why is it that McDonald's and Wendy's wanted to grow through a franchise structure and not like Olive Garden as a chain. And I think it's because they understand the importance of having somebody in the location that has the interests of ownership. That owner is going to run that business better than a, than a, a manager might. And so it, it was a more surefire way for them to grow. I love those examples. And I would say also, um, in addition to your comment, you talked about a sandwich shop selling one of them. You know, that owner has six of them and he's selling all six. I would argue that buying six is significantly better than buying one. Um, mm -hmm. One, you're de-risking. If one of the locations goes bad and you only have one location, you're in hot water. If you have six locations and one goes bad, the other five can kind of float the other one and help the other one out for a little bit, or at least give you some, some cash flow stability. And on the flip side, you've got six locations. You've got enough that you can hire a regional manager to, to handle the overarching thing. I typically find people who have a day job, don't want to quit. And they end up buying one sandwich location because it's a cheaper price. So they you know, feel like it's less risky. I feel like one is actually riskier than if you go in and buy something that's already systemized and has your, your, your bets hedged across multiple locations. 
like if, if I was advising this theoretical person, I would, I would say to them, if you're going to buy six sandwich shops, it better produce the cash flow for you to quit your job and go over there full time. Because yeah. you're, you're now you're talking about a big, significant investment. And I mean, I know a guy that owns three uh, franchise restaurants and he's not the manager of any of them, but he still works full time. And it's, it's all looking at reports, looking at numbers, supervising the purchases, all that kind of stuff. And it, he's got a multi-million dollar operation going on, but I don't think, you know, he wants his finger on the pulse. He wants to know what's going on in it. For me, like what, what kind of job is it? Like uh, you'll often see some kind of really highly paid professionals like doctors and things want to get into business on the side. And you always hear these terrible stories about the doctors that opened the, you know, steakhouse together kind of thing. And you just, you just, this is like the opening line of a joke, right? Because you know where it's going. And in my mind, um, you either, you have to have the full-time ability to keep an eye on your investment in business, or you back off and you buy an investment in a business where there is full-time professional management, which means buying some shares of a publicly traded stock. I love that. I love that. Yeah. You know, if, if you're buying a big enough business or a big enough transaction, it better kick off enough cash flow for you to go full-time on it. And I think that's um, a lot of times when people are asking, can I, can I keep my day job and still buy a business? Many times the businesses that are looking at are so small, they're risky, right? And Mm -hmm. so yes, you can, but you have to be very careful. And and maybe you're buying a side business or something simple, whatever, but you know, things that are, that are operated and treated like a side business always stay like a side business because that's the amount of attention that you give it. So um, I love that. If, if that's something that you're not willing to go all in on, it might be better to actually invest in something that has an operating structure already, um, or just you know think like an owner, invest as an owner rather than you know actually operate and own it together. Um, I love that. You, you might need to rethink the day job that you might be doing if if uh, that's that's the path you're going to go down. So um, one final question here for you. I've heard you can buy a business with no money down. Is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's awesome to be able to think that you can get your hands on a successful, profitable business while investing nothing of your own. In fact, that's, you know, many people aspire to acquire something of great value with nothing. Um, but listen, this question comes up so often and and I've devoted a whole page on my blog to it. With all the different videos over the years, there's probably seven videos I've made about different people coming at me with different angles on this. And it all derives from, I think, people trying to exploit people's desire to somehow get something for nothing. And if you if you do any amount of searching, you're going to find all kinds of people who will promise to be able to teach you how to buy a business with, with no money. And they're usually selling some kind of program that uh, is a couple grand. And basically, it comes down to this. Let's look at it from the point of view of all the other players. So if I'm the seller of a business and I know that the buyer is putting no money in, you know, how does that make me feel about the transaction? If and, and what exactly do we mean by a business? So in one of those videos on that page, I break down what would this transaction look like? So if it were an asset sale, for example, if I had machinery, equipment, inventory, and I agreed to sell it to you, Ryan, for a 100% seller note you would end up on day two with a bunch of equipment and inventory. But then if you tried to sell to some of the customers who expect 30 days to pay, you now have an operating capital problem. So did you really get the business for nothing? Because you are going to have to inject your own money into the till in order to have some operating capital to make the business go. So so this is when you start to peel this onion 
and you start to say, okay, what exactly is a business? It's, a, it's got all these different components. Even if I get some of the components 100% financed by someone, I still need to inject other components. It would be very unlikely for somebody to give me the shares of a company full of operating capital with receivables and everything in place, just hand over the shares to me. Because what I could do is I could then sell off the inventory, collect the receivables and run away, right? And so anyone who's a seller other than a person's parent is probably not going to engage in this or they're going to have attorneys and accountants warning them not to do it, right? So from the seller's point of view, it, it doesn't make sense to do this. From let's say a banker's point of view, because one of the things that I often hear is, oh, you can use the assets of a business and you can leverage them to get the money to buy the business. So a, the cheapest place to get money is a bank. Bankers want to see a buyer with skin in the game. They want to see a buyer put something in that they have to lose, which, which creates that impetus and desire for the, the buyer to work hard to make it successful. They also want to see a buyer that's got credible background that may be able to go off and get a job and earn money if there's some kind of deficit if the business fails, right? There have been people who have failed in business and after everything's done, you know, they owe the bank 10 or 30 grand and the bank's willing to just take payments because the person's had a successful employment history, right? Far better than forcing someone to go bankrupt or whatever, right? So, so the bank wants to see that they're dealing with a person that has some wherewithal. And the question that I always ask people who are in this boat is I'll say, how did you end up in a state where you have no money? Because if you can run your household profitably, household profits are called savings. If you have an income and you have expenses in your household and there's leftover money, that's the profit, that's called savings in a household. If you've been unable to generate any savings from your household, what makes you think you're qualified to run a business, right? So then people will then retort, well, we're not going to use a bank. We're going to use asset-based lenders, which is an expression that's often touted in this, th these, by these folks as a magical spell of a place where you can always get money. The problem is, is that asset-based lenders are basically the pawnbrokers of the commercial finance space. And they don't really care what's going on in your business. What they care about is the asset. So if you have something like a truck, they'll make you a loan against the truck. But here's the difference. Where the banker might be talking about fair market values of the equipment that are in a business, the asset-based lender is going to lend you a percentage of the orderly or forced liquidation value. So that piece of equipment that might be worth 100 grand that the bank might be willing to lend you 80 grand on, your asset-based lender might say the forced liquidation is 50 grand. They're going to lend you 80% of that. That's 40 grand. So not only is the interest rate much higher, but the amount of money forthcoming is much lower. In one very egregious example that I saw, someone paid for one of these courses and sent me a slide. And they said, David, why wouldn't this work? And what it was, was a balance sheet of a company that had a lot of cash, inventory, machinery, and equipment, and very little debt, a certain cash flow. And the, the, person selling the course was saying, you know, you just have to pay three times cash flow. That's the value of the business. Here's the problem though. When you multiply the cash flow, you get the enterprise value and the enterprise value is supposed to include all of the uh, normal things you need to make the business work, including a net normal position in working capital, which means you have to normalize the balance sheet. And that balance sheet that he showed me was an overcapitalized balance sheet. It wasn't properly levered which means that if you were doing a proper business evaluation, you'd get your enterprise value. Then you would say, well, how much of these receivables can we normally finance the bank? How much of this inventory can we normally finance? Let's look at the payables. 
And what we would find is that there would be an excess of operating capital in that particular example, which would be added to the enterprise value if the shares were being sold. And if I'm saying stuff that listeners don't understand, that's an even bigger reason not to think that you can pull this off. I was just, I was going that same direction. I'm like, if you're not following him, then you can't pull this off if you were going to pull it off. <laughs> so, so in my experience, do businesses ever change hands for no money? Absolutely they do. And let me tell you how it really happens. Okay. Number one, there's a good opportunity and someone's got such extremely amazing assets elsewhere in their life that they can leverage to buy the business. They just borrow against their million dollar house that has no mortgage and they buy it for cash. That's a way that it's done. But you see, it's not done by a broke person. It's done by people who have other assets. And so another example would be, and this is a great example. So this guy started working at a trucking company. This is in Alberta. And there's a video on that page I told you about that explains this. He started working at a trucking company, worked his way up through the ranks, eventually became the manager. He and the owner became really good friends. The owner decided he would really like to pass the business on to this guy, but he didn't have any money. So the two of them went to the bank. The bank offered to leverage up the business to the maximum possible using the assets of the business. So again, if you hear these things, there's some nugget of truth in them, which, which is what allows you to get lured into these things. So, so the shares of the company uh, are now levered up to the max, which means the equity is worth the least amount at that moment. And then the seller sold his shares to this manager and he held a note for that transaction. So this manager managed to buy a business with no money, but you know what he had? He had an amazing relationship that he was able to leverage to do this deal. And so would that business owner of the trucking company have been willing to do this for a stranger who called him up on the phone and said, hey, I'm a, an expert in financial engineering. I'd like to make an offer on your business you know, or whatever they're taught to say. And, and this is becoming such a problem. There's a guy known in uh, Clinton Lee over in the UK. He's got, actually got a web page up with lists of different gurus that are selling these programs. And a lot of business brokers out there are now becoming much more upfront about demanding to know where your money is. You know, they want you to prove your ability to make a deal. And the reason is because they've wasted so much time with these people that have attended these weekend airport Hilton seminars um, who believe that they can go out and do these deals and buy these profitable businesses with no money. And like I said, could you pull off a deal? Maybe. And then you'd end up in trouble. Could you pull off a deal to buy a business with no money if you already have lots of money? Yeah, people do that all the time. But if you're broke, don't believe that somebody's got a magical spell book somewhere that can teach you how to get something of tremendous value for no value in exchange. If you're listening to this, hit that uh, button to go backwards a few minutes and re-listen to that again, because there's a lot of nuggets of gold in there, David. And a few of the ones that I really like is, um, first off, if you haven't done this in your own household, you're not going to be able to do it with a business. Very, very true. I think at the same time, Anybody who I've ever seen who says you can do this is typically selling you something. They're selling some sort of course. I love that you said airport seminar. You don't even need to leave mm -hmm. the airport, right? Um, and I think what's important here is like, I heard a quote the other day. It's like, you have to do your own push-ups. So you can't, 
you, someone can't do push-ups for you, right? And so um, unless you have a massive amount of trust, you've worked in the business for 10, 15 years and your, your grandpa, your father is selling you the business, or in this case, you've got a manager you've worked with uh, for 20 years. The only time I've ever seen this done is when there is enormous amounts of trust. The person selling the business doesn't really need the money, right? And they're more doing this for legacy purposes. Um, that is the only way I've seen these structured. And I, I think what... Um, so people don't fall for this is like you said, there's a nugget of truth in all these stories. And yeah. if you take each one of these nuggets and piece them all together, it paints this incredible story, right? But you're taking all these different nuggets of gold out of context. And so I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind as people are are hearing no money down or no zero, zero down or whatever. It, it just doesn't happen. And also, if you are able to pull one of these off, it probably means the business sucks and you don't want the business. <laughs> I, listen, I, had a, I met a guy and he had gone to one of these workshops and, and I said, so how do you do it? How do you make it work? And he's like, well, you, you borrow as much as you can from the bank. And then you, you know, get the vendor note, the seller to hold a big note and, and this and that and the other. And I said, okay, so what about the bank's debt to equity ratio requirement? And he had no idea what I was talking about because of course, you know, and a lot of these guys will offer a 30 day guarantee or whatever, but listen, by the time you find a deal, then you start, you make an LOI or an offer of some kind, and then you find out the bank has something called a debt to equity ratio requirement. Your 30 days is long gone. <laughs> it's three years ago. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Oh man, that that uh, that makes me laugh. So yeah, thanks for kind of shedding some light on that. We'll link to that uh, that site there with Quentin Lee for uh, for for the fraud for no money down. I love that. <laughs> I know we just have a couple of minutes left. Where can people find you, David? Where can uh, they, they follow your, your words of advice, your books and your YouTube channel? The best place to go is head over to my main blog site. It's davidcbarnett.com. And from there, you can find links to all that stuff. And um, on YouTube, I put out a video at least one a week answering someone's questions. And I sometimes have guests that come on. Uh, we do live casts sometimes. And uh, all of the stuff on YouTube plus other stuff ends up on my audio stream. So just look up David C. Barnett on any uh, podcast player that you use and, and you're likely to find me. Uh, and, and I know there's always new ones coming around, but I do my best. David, thank you so much for a few minutes of your time. We'll link to all those there in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan.